Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey, it's Wyatt. Yes, asking for your help. If you like the show and enjoy the content, please hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcast or on Stitcher. Please consider writing a quick review on the Talent Tank Facebook page, on YouTube, and absolutely on Apple Podcast. And consider joining the discussions in the Talent Tank Insiders group on Facebook. All right, let's get to it. All right, here we go. Welcome back the Talent Tank, episode number three. Today, gracing us from the great state of Michigan, multiple EMC winning champion, Casey Gilbert, Gilbert Brothers Motorsports. He's the driver of the 618 4800 class Legends car. Casey, how are you? Good. How are you doing this morning? Just getting going. It is morning. Uh, it was the only time we had between the two of our schedules we could make this happen. Glad we finally got a tie it down. We were able to get you pulled away from work, pulled away from the family, pulled away from race prep, pulled away from all that. So hopefully we'll fall down a rabbit hole for the next hour and find out all about this guy that's racing out of the great North woods, right? Well, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, excited to talk to you and uh, discuss what we do over here. Certainly yep. I want to talk about, you know, why are you sandbagging in 4,800? Why aren't you running 4,400? <laughs> I mean, you've got two KOH EMC wins in a row. You should be forced up a class in my opinion. <laughs> You're a Michigan guy, born and raised, right? Yep. I was actually born just a couple miles away from where we grew up. My parents still live in the same home here just south of Fenton, Michigan. We're actually building a new house just right down the road from them right now. Where is GM Proving Grounds at? It's there somewhere close, right? Yeah, we're about 10 miles north of the GM Proving Grounds. That's a suburb of Detroit, northwest side. Is that right? We're in GM country up here, just south of uh, Flint. I've actually been to Fenton. I came and visited Mike Coville. I'm about two miles from his house right now. Before he moved to China. But yeah, it was, he's still there. Oh, it's, oh, same place he didn't sell, kept it and everything? Yeah. Kept his shop, all that? He, uh, he rented it out. Yep. That's kind of how I met Mike is when he was doing that. I guess it was E-Rock back then. Okay. Down in Tennessee, he was building that new, uh, he started building his own rock crawler and i got a hold of him he was trying to sell that aluminum cj and ended up buying it from him piecemeal and he allowed me to write him i can't i I think it was seven checks i had to write him for the body of that for four hundred dollars a piece because this is like right when i got out of high school and each month he would go cash one of those checks or he'd call me or i'd call him and say okay you can go cash another check so i bought that aluminum cj from him basically on a payment plan like right when i met him <laughs> i love it yeah that so what was that was that about oh four oh five um i would say oh two oh three yeah wow you know that's almost like 20 years ago yeah absolutely insane so i know you've got a wife megan two kids you've got almost a middle schooler or... i've got a son aiden he's uh he's going into fifth grade this year he's a big man on campus yeah he uh he thinks he's tough now. He just started uh, his first couple weeks of conditioning now. He's uh, starting to play tackle football. That's his big thing right now. And, you know, his dad is a, uh, a famous race car driver. So yeah. he's got that in his back pocket. Yep. And then you have a daughter, Addison. Is that right? Addison. She's five. Kindergarten yet? She starts kindergarten this year. We think she's going to be the wild one. She's kind of fearless and we... Uh, we just bought her one of those Razor 170s. They both got those, and they race around the, the farm on them. And uh, she's ride or die full throttle everywhere she goes. 
That's amazing. You got to start them young. I love the Gilbert brothers mentality on this. Teach them young. So have they learned to uh, fix and repair? Yeah. Um, we, I, I try and include them every, every time they're, you know, they break them or they're working on them. We won't wash them for them. They have to wash them. We try and include them every, every time there's going to be a repair or anything like that, just to try and teach them mechanically how to to get through it and I don't I don't think it's just a mechanics problem I think it's more of a like a life problem solving lesson where we don't want them to break something just walk away from it and expect it to fix we try and teach them it's it's their problem they have to work through it that you know if i'm busy at work or you know prepping the race car i've aiden will have to go to one of his uncles and ask them to help him out and fix his razor you know a week before dirty turtle he broke the transmission in half on his his 170 and uh, he spent the week rebuilding it with his uncle is that with cam yep that is a good uncle right there so how has his racing career been he hasn't we haven't raced a lot of organized events he did the 170 race at ultra four last year at dirty turtle he ended up fourth then this year they let the kids go run around on the track but they didn't have any really organized events we're planning to uh dirt riot or uh i can't remember the other name of the series now it used to be kryptonite i believe down in south carolina we're gonna try and start taking them to some more of those races you'll put some miles on a toter huh yeah the toter gets a ton of miles on it the kids like traveling to the race when we had the pickup truck it wasn't the you know the funnest thing to do to try and travel with the young kids but with the toter they can use the bathroom going down the road they can eat they lay down on the couch do whatever it makes it a lot more fun i think anyone who knows anything about anything knows to to be successful in anything and and be married that you need a a spouse that is totally supportive tell us about megan i mean did you con her into the off-road life bait and switch or was she just always known how you were and she doesn't know any better tell us about this Megan and I met in high school, so uh, she's kind of been involved with it ever since we've known each other. There's times she doesn't like it. You know, we put a lot of hours into the shop, but she's supportive. She knows when we need to be in the shop, and she knows when we need to prep for races, and she'll handle the kids, and she'll do running around for us. But we kind of grew up together. We've been together for over 18 years now, so. Congratulations. We always talk about, like, race family. My wife, when I was racing regularly, my wife she understood everything it took to get the car ready the prep the hours on the road and the race stuff she was not into the events i couldn't drag her to an event for the most part i got her to go to the mint 400 a couple years only because it was in vegas that was it so how's megan on that early in my racing days she was not interested in it she just didn't want to go the more friends she's made now with the racing you know the colvilles the millers shirley's the blyler's now she looks forward to going to the races to hang out with their girlfriends and do whatever. Very cool. They kind of chit-chat before the races, and they, they set up meals and do whatever. And uh, I think it's actually kind of exciting for her now. It's something of a support group. Yeah. Right. So you got out of high school up there, and I know you went into college, and you have a kind of a crazy degree. I want you to dive into that because people say they have a business degree or an economics degree or finance degree or something. You have a degree in fire science. Yes. I've always worked for myself. And then uh, I had a couple friends um, in high school. They were actually going to a church group. And one of the church group leaders was on the fire department here. And he approached us as a group and he said, hey, why don't you come down? The fire department has an Explorer program. And what an Explorer program is, is it's a, a program for younger kids It's through Boy Scouts of America. They do the insurance and everything on it. But basically, you go job shadow the fire department. And, uh, you know, we go to training with them. We go on calls with – there's certain calls we go on with them. 
Um, obviously, they're not going to throw you in a burning building or you know out on the highways and stuff. So when I was 16 years old, we went down and uh, started working with the fire department through this Explorer program. Did that for two years. And then uh, my senior year of high school, I went to the fire academy at night with a couple of friends of mine and uh, ended up graduating the fire academy. And when we graduated high school, we all got hired onto the Fenton Fire Department. So that's kind of how that got started. And uh, I was doing my own thing, landscaping and lawn care still. Didn't really know what I wanted to do for college. So I just started taking classes in uh, fire science. Ended up going to school for a couple of years for that. Things progressed. And next thing you know, you're on the fire department for 18 years. That's a good thing, right? Uh, what is the average fire in that area? Is it is it grass fire, wood fire? Are they house fires? We were a combination department of, we would run EMS calls. We'd, we'd go on anything from uh, EMS calls, traffic accidents, uh, house fires. They covered uh, 64 square miles of rural farm country. So grass fires were pretty prevalent. I would say the majority of the calls are usually EMS calls. And that's that's kind of the standard throughout many fire departments in the country. Fenton's kind of a diverse fire department where they've got this the core, which is the city of Fenton, and then they contract out into these other townships. So uh, they're trained kind of as an urban and a rural fire department, if you would say. This is a, like a part-time gig for you. Yeah. So we have a full-time chief, and then they would run a duty shift during the day, which would just be two two guys on duty to you know, take care of the, the BS calls here and there and do all of the pre-fire inspections and whatnot. And then Fenton's made up of 35 paid on call volunteers trained twice a month. Basically, you, you carry a pager around and you're required to respond to a certain amount of calls per year. Wow. Not only are you a full-time dad racing in a national circuit, you're a volunteer fireman. Let's talk about a million dollar question. What do you do? Back when I was real young, around 12, 14 years old, in Michigan, you can get your boater safety license when you're 12. So you drive a boat by yourself. So we grew up on a lake and our parents always pushed boat safety. So what, what we did, and my brother and I, my older brother, when uh, we got our boater safety license, we used to take our parents' boat and we would drive around the lake and mow lawns. So we started up a company mowing lawns, you know, via, via the boat. Long story short, short, turned 16 years old, and my dad co-signed on a set of zero-turn lawnmowers for my older brother and I. Him and I started a company, it was called Tipsco Lawn Care, and we worked together for a couple years. When I graduated high school, he was in college, and he didn't really want to do it anymore. I took my graduation money, and I bought him out of that business. For the next 10, 12 years, we were primarily a lawn care and landscape contractor, Kind of got tired of the lawn care and the the name Tipsco Lawn Care had a little bit of a stigma, you know, just as a lawn care maintenance company. We didn't want to do that anymore. So uh, we opened up Alliance Property Management and that's kind of morphed into more of a, a land clearing tree service type uh, type company. And uh, right now we've got nine guys working for us and we're primarily just a tree service contractor. So I've seen some crazy videos from you of 100 foot tall pine trees up on them on a rope cutting stuff down or using very 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 long boom trucks yep is that your standard of uh of how you guys are reducing the trees down to knock them down to clear yeah i mean we've got boom truck and then we had a track lift until a couple weeks ago when we it got rolled off trailer in a traffic accident but we had uh, a 72 foot track lift basically you can drive this track lift anywhere into someone's yard it's got outriggers you set it up yeah we just take the trees down piece by piece you know uh, probably 90 percent of our business is all residential trees the other 10 percent you know land clearing so yeah it's either uh 
boom truck, a track lift, or, or start climbing. So you're working around, you know, some constraints that you don't want to drop a tree through somebody's roof, right? Yep. Here recently, I've seen you've expanded your business into uh, some heavy equipment. I believe you have an excavator now. It's quite the famous excavator from what I've seen. Yeah, we've always had smaller equipment, you know, skid steers, mini excavators, stuff like that around. My wife and I, we ended up buying 23 acres last fall, and I talked her into letting me buy an excavator with the mentality that she thought I was going to save money by digging the own, digging our own basement and uh, putting the septic field in and doing all this. And basically all I've done with it is uh, buried it in a pond. I've been trying to dig a couple times here. So I think it's cost us more than it's worth. <laughs> For those that don't know and want to go hit Google, you know, excavator is a, a tracked piece of equipment with a very long arm and knuckle and bucket out on the end, like a backhoe. Uh, Casey, you have a caterpillar, right? Yeah, it's a Cat uh, 314. It's a mid-sized machine. It's nothing huge. It's But it, it when, when you get it stuck, it's heavy. It's 32,000 pounds, and then you sink it into a black hole of death. It takes some serious equipment to get them out of there. No knuckling or cribbing. If I saw the pictures that I saw correctly, you would try to pull some uh, pull some trees down to use for cribbing underneath to use as traction. You know, jumping back to your early four wheeling days of how to uh, extract yourself, and uh, it didn't didn't seem to be successful. So, did you have to call out like a like an off road tow truck or someone else to bring another piece of equipment to, to extract you, or how how this go down? Yeah, the well, the first time I did it, we were able just to hook some tow trucks onto it and uh, get it out. The, the same pond I've sank in twice now is right behind the house where we're building. The problem is we can't get the dirt out of there as soon as we start the house. So we're trying to get the dirt out, dig the basement, and get the house built the way the pond's situated behind the house. But uh, when I sank it this week, it was a two tow trucks. We ended up going and uh, quote unquote borrowing another piece of equipment off a neighboring job site, a big cat 300, which is a, which is a huge excavator. And uh, it took two tow trucks and a, cat 300 to get it out of this hole last uh tuesday night about 12 1 in the morning we finally got it out of there is that a a borrowing because you you knew the guy that owned it or is it borrowing because you just happen to have a cat key in your pocket it was a borrowing because we had a cat key in the pocket and my excavator was uh <laughs> fast and there were there were thunderstorms moving in how did i know uh yeah, yeah i mean that's the the farm way as well you know and then you then you go once you return it you go leave a 12 pack of beer on the seat and so <laughs> when the farmer comes out he's like oh, somebody borrowed my tractor last night you know because <laughs> yeah thanks, no thanks I, 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 I called the guy in the morning and he sounded okay with it but uh not excited about it the benefits of carrying a, a handful of different tractor keys in your pocket because they all seem to work the same you know komatsu yep. Kubota, cat if you have one key it works well but all the new cat stuff is a uh, touch code yep yeah no these are all uh, older machines you know mid 2000s so they're all just cat key just a cat key so uh so yeah i understand that so on the property you've got to work your way out of it so you've got to get the uh, the pond done first then you got to move forward to the house you know your septic go out or lateral field or um yeah the septic's up here um, the property we're on perked pretty well. It, it's going to drain. It's just a standard field, you know, 1,200 square feet of uh, field with the, just a 1,000-gallon tank. It's nothing special. 
And for anyone now getting the cue on this show, we're going to talk about a little bit of everything. And if no one wanted to know about subject fields and you didn't think you were ever going to hear that discussed as a topic on this, uh, yeah, you, you, we just checked that box. So yeah, so congratulations though. You're building a new house. Like when do you think it'll be done? Com- completion date, target date? We're just kind of going as we please right now, to be honest with you. We we put our house for sale. We lived in the city of Fenton and uh, we wanted to move back south into the township where I grew up. We put our house for sale up this spring. It sold within a day. We bought a 40-foot camper and we're uh, living in my brother's backyard right now, to be honest. So, And that, um, was, that was the segue I was going for because <laughs> when we started, your, your brother Cam, right? Yep, my brother Cameron. So they've been, you know, super supportive. I mean, obviously Cameron's been around racing for as long as you have. It's nice to have family that'll put up with you and don't get too attached to that RV there, Clark. I'll be taking it with me next year. <laughs> yeah. No, we always laugh because we've got our, our toter home, which is our, uh, our, our motor home. We call that the vacation home. And then we've got the travel trailer that we live in. We call our house. All of our houses are currently on wheels. Just rotate tires between them. Keep yeah. good, keep, keep good rubber on the road. You know, I send out a, a questionnaire. It's a web-based questionnaire for you guys to fill out as we go through this. Some of it's for information for me. Some of it's just to see you know, what you guys fill out. And and on there, it's it's actually question 18. It says, are there any interesting or embarrassing stories that you'd be willing to share? And your response is quite possibly one of the funniest. I mean, I laughed when I saw it. It says, um, my whole life is embarrassing according to my wife. <laughs> yeah, so... Um we, we've all got good sense of humors around here and uh, we just kind of go through life with the take it as a how it comes, you know. So like I guess I don't know how to explain myself, but I, I just I do stuff and I deal with the consequences later, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. That's kind of my motto in life. Like, you know, like I said earlier, we sold our house in a day. And then we figured out a way to deal with the consequences and, and people laugh at us like, oh, you're living in a trailer. And I'm like, I don't even care. You know, if I if I wake up and I'm walking and talking, I'm happy. I think it's a good mantra. I mean, it's certainly worked for you. I think it I think uh, just that statement, it means you're good people. I think good good people goes a long ways. And the, the people that are giving you a hard time, they're the ones that in five years from now, you look at you and your new your new house, new built. They're gonna be like, man, I wish I could do something like that. Like. Well, yeah, you go live in a trailer house for a year in, in your brother's front yard. Yeah. You'll get there. No, and, and without, like you're saying, without a good support staff behind you, I call the staff, but I'm talking about, you know, my wife and my family, my parents, my my dad's 65 years old and he's he's climbing up a pole barn to help me hang trusses on it, you know, right now. And it's like, without all those people around you, you just, no matter what you do, you can't go at life alone. You need to uh, you need to have a good team. Certainly blessed with good family, good friends, and developed some really great relationships that uh, that have certainly paid dividends for you, man. Here we are. It's early. It's 2002. You've just procured a uh, an aluminum CJ from Mike Coville. You're into wheeling. I know there's tons of places to wheel in Michigan. There's you know Silver Lake, snowmobile trails. What got you from there to where we are pre-KOH? Yeah, so like you said, I bought the a chassis from or that aluminum CJ. That's where Mike Coville gets his online name, if anyone was wondering. But from when he was around the E Rock days, I bought that chassis from him. And uh, I guess our home stomping grounds or whatever you want to call it, um, we used to run to the Badlands all the time. Badlands in Attica, Indiana, is about six hours from us. I'm sure, a lot of you guys have been there. It's great rocks, trails, mud, anything you can throw at it. Home to Jesse Haynes. 
Yep. Homeland, home ground before he ended up in Reno. That's the Brannick boys. That's uh that's Brannick backyard, right? Yeah, that's actually where I met uh, Brannick. We used to go down there, and if anyone remembers Troy Myers, the original owner of the Badlands, we used to he used to let us camp on his property back behind his house. Uh, the Mission Impossible trails they called it. But I met Stan and Brannick. Uh, Stan from Brannock and Dino down there. And uh, one of my fondest memories was the first time I ever met those guys. Dino had his new uh, new wife, Corinne, in the car with them, and he was high-centered up on a rock, and I thought I'd go up behind him and just give him a little nudge. And I ended up uh, tumbling him and his new wife down a hill end over end. I didn't realize how big the cliff was on the other side that I shoved them off of. <sighs> That was one of the first times I ever went wheeling with those Brannock guys and probably oh three, oh four, I would say. Yeah, Stan Haynes and Brandon Haynes and yeah, Dino and MacGyver and who else am I list- leaving out of there? Roscoe was always down there. Oh, that's us. right, Roscoe. Man, you know, we lost Roscoe a couple years ago. That's a, still a sad hole in my heart on him. Troy Myers. Did did I hear right? Troy Myers passed away from cancer a couple years ago. Yeah. I don't know the exact date, but I'd probably say it's around two years ago we lost Troy. He was always a big innovator in the game of rock crawling. I feel like when he had uh, Jesse working there for him, and that's kind of when I developed a relationship, you know, friendship with Jesse Haynes, because Jesse's a Michigan guy from back in the day. He grew up here not too far from us and then uh, went down to the Badlands. And I don't know if he's the one who drew us down to the Badlands or or not, but, you know, the more we went down there, the more we were friends with him and – he, he would do anything to help you stay wheeling for the weekend. I think my first foyer into recognizing Jesse was he'd built a, it was a mid-engine car. I think they called it the Apache. And it was weird. It was like you sat on top of or almost in front of the front axle. And then the engine sat longitudinally behind the seat. And then it had a really long tail. I mean, that was probably, that was, it was probably 2005 or 2006. And it was like, that seemed like the, everyone was working to get weight up front for climbs. We weren't doing anything else besides climbs and th- that thing climbed amazingly great, but I think it was a total failure on like every other level and Jesse scrapped it very quickly. There's some cool stuff that came out of the ba- Badlands in that era um, when Jesse was there. That, that put that place on the map. I've raced there once. It was XRA way back in the day when uh, they raced in the gravel pit there. Yeah, I think that was uh I think that's what it's called. Uh, they called the quarry. The quarry. Yeah. yeah. All right. But yeah, I wheeled that uh, aluminum Jeep down there for a while. And then uh, Blue Torch Fab Works, it had to have been around that 04, 05 era. Blue Torch Fab Works put up, what do you want to call it? Not a raffle, but a competition or whatever to uh, win one of their uh, fusion chassis. Oh, yeah. Um, four by four. You had to get so many votes. You had to get people to vote for you or do whatever. And uh, my wife was actually probably the one who won that chassis for me. She was going to Western Michigan University at that time, and she printed up flyers of how to create an account on Pirate 4x4, log in, and vote for me to win that chassis. And I actually, I won that chassis by a landslide, if I remember correctly. And a group of buddies and I, we won the chassis, we loaded up, headed down to, drove down to Dothan, Alabama on a Friday night to meet Dan DeBoss and uh, pick up that chassis, hung out with them for the night, and turn around and peeled out back to michigan that that is an awesome story 
Especially the Dan part. You know, Dan is the quintessential marketer, right? I wonder what his organic reach was, quote unquote, back in the day. Like, you know, Dan had a thumb on what his return on that investment was going to be, right? Yeah, no, he's a, he's a smart guy. There, he, he knows how to market and, uh, you know, he's had a couple of successful businesses and uh, he's still doing his, uh, what, I can't remember the name of his new company, but he's still going at it. Yeah, Motobilt. He's got Motobilt, yeah, and, Motobilt. Then, and then he's got a he's got a commercial company, um, Anvil Anvil Industries. He's got some big laser machines and some stuff. So you you built the Fusion chassis up, right? Wheeled it. Yes, yeah, so I ended up taking the the aluminum CJ apart and I sold it to Brian Howard. Brian Howard, a uh, good friend of Jesse Haynes down there by the Badlands, and built the Fusion chassis up. I wheeled it for a couple of years. Just kind of got tired of it a little bit and ended up selling it off and taking a break for wheeling for two or three years got back into boating heavy we've always been on lakes up here got into some go fast boats hydro streams you know with big mercury motors in them and whatnot kind of got the itch to get back into wheeling and uh bought an xj for 400 bucks and i went up to the local set of trails and uh mike colville was up there john jacob all guys who raced ultra four and uh they said, hey, why don't you take that thing down to the Badlands and race in Trek? Trek was trail racing endurance circuit. And I said, I said, what's that? And they said, oh, you just go down, race whatever you want to race. You know, you just got to have a helmet, neck brace, some seat belts, some crappy little cage or whatever. And I, I said, hey, that sounds like fun. So uh, my brother Cameron and I we and Mike, uh, we went over to Coville's house and we threw a cage in this thing in like two hours. It was the crookedest thing you've ever seen in your life. Went down and raced for the weekend and we said, man, that's a lot of fun. Ended up building that XJ and racing it for a good chunk of the season until it, it fell in half. Broke. I mean, it literally just broke in half. Long story short, we pulled the drivetrain out of it, stuffed it in a new uh, XJ Kind of converted at that point in time, converted over to meet Ultra 4 4600 rules. You know, put bigger tires on it, axles, the whole nine yards. And uh, that's kind of how we got into the endurance race. And it was just buying a $400 piece of junk and someone talking us into going down and racing at the Badlands. That's how it works, though, right? You want to do whatever your friends are doing, whatever it takes to drink beer with them. Yeah, no. Uh, and uh, Colville had already been racing, uh, I think, one of the cars you not the car you bought from him, maybe uh, the one he sold Ben Dinkins, but he had been racing King of the Hammers and trying to get us to go out there with them. And it just wasn't ever on my radar. And then uh, I saw these race cars down there, you know, you had Colville and Roscoe and the, the Brannock guys, Scooby, and they all had these big, bad 4,400 cars. And I was like, wow, maybe this is something cool. That's kind of how I got my interest in Ultra 4 was watching them race down at the Badlands. How long did you stay racing that Cherokee, though? I want to say we raced it for two years at the Trek Series, and then we went to, um, I raced it in King of the Hammers and 4600 for one year. First year I ever raced King of the Hammers. Second year I was out there because I was out there with Colville the year before helping him. But What year was that? 12? It was probably, yeah, it was 12 or 13. We raced in 4600, and I, we finished fourth. Cameron and I, we finished fourth place in the biggest clapped-out piece of junk Cherokee you've ever seen in your life, and we thought we were kings of the world, but it was fun. So the following season, we, we said, man, why don't we have some more fun in this Cherokee? And uh, so we bought a van motor, 5.3 liter, <laughs> out of a uh, literally. I've heard, I've heard something about van motors. Yeah. So uh, the the rolling jokes always uh if you got a 
a little motor, the, the, the van motors that could. Bought this van motor and we stuffed a 5.3 LS in this in this Cherokee and uh, we thought we were going to go conquer King of the Hammers in mod class. Left the start line, went flying across. We got about 10 miles into the race and we were crossing into the military base. Cameron says, turn. And I said, I am turning. And we hoofed it over a one of those big berms at about 60 miles an hour. And he says, why didn't you turn? I said, I was trying to turn. We get the car back straight. We're going down. And next thing you know, we realize that the the rear axle is no longer attached. And that's why we couldn't turn. <laughs> the front wheels were engaged. The rear were not. Yeah. So that was kind of the end of the, uh, we ended up doing the whole first lap with the tires rubbing in the, uh, the wheel wells, basically to hold the, the axe, the rear axle in place. And, uh, that was the, the last time the Cherokee ever moved. And so you came back from there and said, you know, it's time to, it's time to get my ducks in a row. It's time to go to tube chassis. At that point, had you decided that I'm ready for 4,800? That year was a year I think they introduced 4,800 at King of the Hammers. And I think there was eight to 12 cars probably racing. And it was kind of a little bit on our radar. And we, we, we looked at it and we said, man, maybe that's a, a gateway to, you know, it, it costs money to race. It costs a lot of money to race a piece of junk. I always tell people, I say, you buy good parts, you're going to spend the same amount of money. So you might as well race with good parts. So we looked at 4,800 class and we said, we could build a nice car that maybe we don't have to repair as often and still spend the same amount of money as we're, you know, spending in time, put this Cherokee back together. So came home, took Cherokee apart. And at that time, Eric Miller was trying to ramp up the production on his pro chassis. And I knew he had the first hand-built chassis done. And so I started bugging him about it. And it, it took me about six months, but I finally got him to come off that first chassis after they were done doing all the prototyping work on it, you know, laser scanning, changing this, changing that. They were ready to go in production with their actual production chassis. So he sold me that first prototype Miller chassis that fall. Oh, that, that would have been 2011. And the fall of 2010 is when I bought that chassis. Or 2011, I bought that chassis from Eric. I know it's later than that. I'm sorry. I got, I got my years mixed up here. But long story short, I bought that from Eric, built it over the winter, and that's when we started racing 4800. That had been four years ago. That car in and of itself is actually somewhat dated, but you still put it on the podium at KOH the last two years. Yeah, we've raced that car four times at KOH. First year, we had drive shaft failure. Second year, I put a big kid motor in it and uh, broke transfer case in half at mile 50. Pulled in the pits. We swapped the transfer case mid-race, and we finished, uh, I think, 16th or 17th that year. And then uh, the last two years, we've had great success. We put better parts in the car. We've developed a lot of stuff with Miller as far as not developing on his end, but he's developed, helped develop my car as far as telling me what I need to do to make it faster as far as parts. And they helped me out along the way. And uh, we've got the car basically built to the point where it's one of the Miller 4400 cars with, with single shocks on it right now. No, you don't say. So kind of like you're sandbagging. <laughs> yeah, you could. Uh, People call it handbaggers all the time, but 4,800, it's a good class. It's a lot of fun. It's more budget friendly than 4,400. We, we do plan to move up, you know, to another class here soon. We've had a lot of fun the last four years developing this car and uh, I've had a lot of fun doing it and some success, you know. No, you've been the quintessential guy to beat for the last two years. You've really owned it. It's really cool to see, you know, you've, you've been an overnight success in just under 10 years. That's what it looks like on this end that 
you've cut your teeth, you've paid your dues, you've put in your time, you built up, you scrap stuff, and then you've worked your way into working out all the bugs front to back, left to right on this Miller Pro chassis. I didn't realize how involved Eric and Eric Miller Motorsports has been in, involved in your program, but that's uh, that's actually no surprise to me that he is. Eric's a very thorough, dot your I's, cross your T's type guy. So Yeah, sometimes uh, I don't get frustrated with them, but I'm always like, Eric, come on, let's move forward with this or let's do this. And the amount of research and development and thought process that they put into every single part of their cars is unreal. And after he sends you the parts, you're like, wow, that, that really makes sense. And, you know, they work right. They're square. The parts are machined properly. You don't have failures with their stuff. So I would say a lot of our success is working with, with him and uh, the guys up at Big B who do a lot of his manufacturing. We've got a good car and you've got to have a good car to win. Tell me about, uh, I think everyone wants to hear this. What has been the the line items in the way you handle your race program that have put you in the, the catbird seat to win, to be successful, not once or twice, but continuously uh, throughout all of last year and all of this year? It seems like you know, certainly Miller's involvement. Were the things from Miller's program that you were able to implement or are you just very OCD, things have to be XYZ have to all line up perfectly and we're going to do that every single time. Tell me about your race prep to everything kind of leading up to the green flag. Obviously race prep is huge. We put a ton of hours into the car. We, we rebuild everything. Everything gets torqued and rechecked and you've got to, like I said earlier, you've got to have good parts and work with good companies like them. Otherwise you're not going to be successful. And I kind of pride ourselves on some of the relationships we've built over the years with, you know, Brannock's a big part of our car, doing machine work and supplying us with different stuff. And the work we do on the suspension with uh, with Pack and Collins Motorsports, is, that's huge for us. I know Jason Yude over at Pack. I know you've been very much involved with Pack Racing's development of their suspension spring line. How does that play in with you know the Gilbert Brothers Motorsports program? actually we were some of the first ones to actually run their jeep speed springs is on the xj and that's how we've kind of developed the relationship with them over at pack but uh jason actually lives or grew up probably five miles from us and i met him through uh some four-wheeling friends back in early early 2000s and then uh his involvement with mike colville on his 4400 car and then uh it just kind of morphed into this uh the 4800 stuff, Jason kind of came to us and said, hey, we've got plenty of plenty of 4400 cars running our stuff. We, we want to kind of get into this new 4800 market and see what we can do. And Pack, along with uh, Billy Gorky over at Collins Motorsports, we kind of teamed up here a little bit together. And uh, the amount of development they put into our shocks and our, our spring package and our sway bars and the DSR twos and everything on our car that pack builds with the fine tuning of the Collins guys is a real reason we can plow that car through about everything you can put it into. So I'll say my experience with pack was, you know, when I was building the unicorn, I went to them for the rear sway bar on that car working with Jason. He had given me some calculations that they had based off of Eric Miller's car. We took that, ran that through the kind of the chassis calculator on that being Eric's car being a solid front axle, this being a uh, an independent front suspension car. We came up with what would be the bar and the arm length 
from Jason, had it built. It went to like Havasu. It went to Easy Rick. It got put on the car. Out of the box, the sway bar was perfect. It was completely dialed. There's many other things about the car that was not dialed on day one. Uh, the sway bar was. They were certainly one company that I couldn't say enough good stuff about. Rarely in motorsports and in the type of prototypical stuff that we're doing, new cars, new builds, new parts, and putting them all together and making them work together, do you get something that works perfectly out of the box? I got to say, pack Pat killed it for me anyway. And it, it sounds like they've been doing their homework with you guys. So very cool. Yeah, it works. Um, so there's not a lot of guessing and checking. You know, you, they can get you pretty close to the ball, ballpark right out of the right out of the gate, which I think uh, a lot of people think they can just build a car and go out and race it. And they don't understand the hours and hours and hours of testing that you really need to put into a car, shock tuning. And it's not just shock tuning. It's like you say, it's, it's sway bar tuning. It's shock tuning, it's tire pressures, it's moving this in the car, moving that in the car, you know, the critical systems, correct? I think that's really cool to get that out there is we've seen an influx of many, many new racers into into Ultra 4. You know, someone come in via UTV or someone go buy a used 4400 car because they saw it on ESPN or CBS Sports. There is a learning curve and you guys, you, Miller, and there's some, you know, other guys out there, you know, Randy over at Jimmy's 4x4, the guys at Trent Fab. There's, there's so many builders out there. Campbell, the many, many people have came before him to kind of level this playing field. Now it's again, like Miller does very well is the dotting the I's crossing the T's of uh, what it takes to, to win. It's, it's all the, it's all the detail work that takes to win. And, and if you're not privy to even what the details are, how can you check them off and how can you be successful at the details if you don't even know what they are? And, and I know you are able to definitely draw on your, uh, your past experiences to be successful and, it's it's very cool to see it paying dividends last two years for you. Yeah. And and like like you're saying, it's not just you can't just go out and buy a car. I mean, if you walk into to anyone's pits, I mean we can use Miller as an example again, the night before KOH, it's not they're not sitting around the campfire just shooting the crap about what they think's gonna happen tomorrow. They've got computer models up with you know, with fuel calculations. They've got each pit laid out with what's going to each pit, who's going where, what's gonna happen with the this situation you know they've got their they call it their command center you know during the race they've got live tracking on the cars they've got they know where all their pit crew members are they've got radios big enough to talk to the entire course and and a lot of our successes come from that because i i look at i looked at him and uh you know the guys that were winning when we were racing with mike colville we you know we look at what he was doing and and i basically grew my race program off of off of learning off of those guys so i didn't just come out of the box winning you know because of my own knowledge basically i sat back and watched all these other teams and learned what they were doing and basically grew my my team on their dime as far as uh, research and development because i didn't have to go out there and spend the money to to make the mistakes that they had done earlier in their careers and they had already learned from I hope to have someone from Miller on at some point. I don't know if Eric's going to be the guy or maybe we get Lee on here. I will certainly figure some way to get someone from their program on here. One thing that came out of this past KOH that I got out of them that blew my mind. I know there's there's nerds everywhere. I'm going to call them nerds. There's nerds everywhere. Yeah. People that are just so involved over and they obsess about what they're doing. And when I discovered that Miller had it down to 
the race mileage of the course as build, what was it? Was it like 200, 250 miles this year? Or it was whatever the number was, what they were actually coming up with on GPS after they'd ran it numerous times and what their mileage was. Their mileage was off the chart because the mileage of the course was race miles are not actual miles. Yeah, and that uh, that comes from Ryan. We does does ocean floor mapping, from what I understand. So that's what he kind of does for a living is uh, measuring stuff. Two nights before the race, I said he was doing the fuel calculations for my car, and I said, Ryan, I, I said, there's no way I'm going to make that first lap, and he says, you'll make that first lap, and I said, he pulls up the data and he says, look at this, he says, uh, they're thirty percent off on their mileage, and I said, no way, and sure enough, I, I didn't trust him. Yeah, I don't know if it was 30, but it, it was like 18% or something, I thought. It was a it was, it was very close. It was a big number. Yeah, yeah, it might not be 30, but it was a big number. And uh, we were going to splash going out of pit one, do the first loop, and splash coming back through pit one. And he says, you're not going to need that extra fuel. And we came back through pit one with almost a half a tank of fuel. That's It's just it's little things like that. It's like you pull in the pits and you lose two minutes or three minutes. We're not nascar here these guys can think they pit fast you know in ultra four but the fact of the matter is we don't but without ryan being in miller's command center we would have never known that with races being decided by seconds over 200 miles you know two minute three minute stop is a big deal you add the the safety constraints of you know what can happen when all of a sudden people start touching the car and with live fuel yep definitely why take the risk yeah it's not worth you busted out your second win this year. This year was very interesting, and you battled with uh, Levi Shirley. Levi Shirley brought out his old, I believe it's a Sniper Fab car. Is that right? Old two-seat? Yeah, I believe so. I think Terry Madden had the same car at one point in time. Are there two yeah, one, cars out there somewhere? Yeah. At one point. Gosh, I can't remember the guy's name. He was out of like Oklahoma City, I believe. Don... Don, some uh, that built him, and then Don ended up in oil field work, and he actually ended up here in Houston for a little while. But yeah, so I, I knew Levi busted out that old car, converted it to 4,800, went head to head with you at that point, the defending King of the Hammers champion of EMC. You guys had a tight race, right? The whole first half until I think he lost a transmission on Jack North. Yeah, he uh, he followed us for a little while. I want to say the first 20 miles or so. I did that first pit and I think he caught up to me then. And uh, I got out of the pits in front of him, but we knew he was behind us. He started pushing on us a little bit and we said, you know, we're going to run our own race until we need to push the car because even though the EMC race is a lap shorter than KOH, it's still tough on those cars. Those 37 inch tires just don't take the bumps like the big cars. And uh, he passed us and we uh, we just paced off of him for the next uh, probably 40, 50 miles. We knew we couldn't push the cars that hard for that long. We got in behind him. I think it is Jack North. He got hung up and he couldn't back up or couldn't go forward. I don't remember what it was, but uh, we ended up sneaking around him. And at that point, we were able to pretty much walk away with the race. I didn't go pull up splits. My, my recollection, it was like 30 minutes. Yeah. You were way out front. I do remember seeing on the live tracker when you came out of like outer limits. I think the next car behind you was level. When level came out of, I feel like it was either was Spooners the down. Yeah, you came down Spooners and then made the left. I feel like when when Level made that left, you were already almost at the podium or very close. Yeah, physically, we were quite a ways ahead. I don't remember. Bailey Cole was coming from the back of the pack this year. I don't remember what the split time on him was. So uh, physically, he was a little, he looked farther back than he really was on time. 
he took a back of the pack start for was a motor. They replaced the motor during before qualifying. He missed qualifying or yeah, they lost the motor and I, I don't think the car was ready for qualifying. So he had to take a rear start. We saw that worked out for Tom Ways a couple years ago. I mean, Tom didn't finish that race. It kind of opened up a chink in the armor that if you have a fast car and you're a good driver, you can make up a bunch of corrected time. The rear start's not a bad thing unless you get stuck behind the traffic jam. The rear start could almost be an advantage, I think, sometimes. Not due to traffic, but the people out front get lackadaisical. So what you're saying was uh, the guys who get out front end up uh, lackadaisical and they aren't pushing as hard as somebody in the back. You get out front, and if you don't have the pit crew who has the sense, you know, with proper split times, um, you you think you're 20 minutes out in front, but somebody started a half hour behind you, has got you on time, and you don't even realize it. So um, that's a real, that's my biggest problem with leading a race is um, trying to pace myself properly. You know, you don't want to be pushing too hard where you break the car, but you, you can't get lackadaisical and let someone come up from behind. So which one do you prefer then? Do you prefer to be the fox or do you prefer to be the hound? I like to be the hound, but the problem is you want those qualifying points. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So in the grand scheme of the year in the points race, you need those qualifying points. I got it. Yeah. Seven qualifying points is huge. Plus uh, KMC hard charger award. They pay for your race. So financially it's smart i guess that's not a guess plus you get the bragging rights and a and a cool green hat at least last year right yeah they went away from the uh, 1980s green hats this year and got us some cooler looking ones <laughs> i like those hats though I, th- I thought they were good looking we've totally rolled up to modern 2019 casey racing what are your plans for end of year are you going to go out to Reno for nationals rolling into KOH? Yeah, we're planning on finishing out this season in this car the way it sits right now. We're kind of up in the air. We're going to put this car up for sale at the end of the year or put it up for sale now and rent a car for Reno or whatever we need to do. If the car doesn't sell, we'll probably be converting it over to 4400 for next season. And that's just a kind of a, a mental personal choice for me. I, I like to be challenged, you know, when we're racing. And I, I feel like if we go out and have a good race right now, we can win, can win most of the races if we want to. We just want to get into something a little bit more challenging. And on the East Coast, it's a little bit difficult with the lower 4,800 car counts. If we were out West, I'd probably stay in 4,800 class. There's a lot of fast guys out there. We just had a little bit lower car count so i think i'm gonna move up to 4400 for next year i'm guessing that you're gonna lean on miller motorsports for for another chassis in the future is that a a fair assumption yeah they're working on some new car part change the uh i don't know if eric's gonna be able to run those straight axle shirts anymore he's got they're uh they're working on some new the modeling of them right now and the the development of it so i'm hoping we can get into one of their new chassis the zero fox given yeah I've got one of those. <laughs> oh, man. We're leaning on him. There's a couple of us leaning on him pretty hard to try and uh, put some wings on the front of these cars. Yeah, some chicken wings? Yep. Have you driven or ridden in an IFS car yet? Yeah, I raced with Mike Colville, Mike Colville and his ginger chicken car that uh, Jay Calloway owns now. And did that not feel like cheating? That's why I don't understand how Eric Miller has had the success he has in his straight axle car in 4400 class. I think if you take a a driver who's driven a a straight axle car as fast as he has and put him in an independent front suspension car, he's going to go out there and dominate. Fully agree. Yeah, no, the first time I rode in Colville's car, we were doing some work with Pack Racing Springs and they were uh, 
I don't know if you remember the the JRI shock days, call them the radio shocks. They were doing some electric shock development with PAC as far as bypass valving and stuff. And I got in that car and the first time we hit a washout, I thought we were going to endo the car and it just floated over it, you know, and it was at a speed that I've never driven before. And he scared the crap out of me that day. But uh, how much smoother they ride, how much more reactive the steering is, it's it's a whole different animal. You know, I will be pulling for you there. Just watching what you did just this past year. I really wish you luck in 4,400. I mean, there's certainly a stacked field on any given day. The top 20 guys still have a shot at it after the green flag drops. Good racing. Very good racing. And with as good a wheel man as you are, I don't think you'll have any problem. As good as your program is, I don't think you'll have a problem. You'll have a lot of success there. If if it's a new car, working the bugs out. Or if it's this car, working the bugs out of uh, it after the transition. But Casey... Thank you very much for being episode three of the Talent Tank. Any closing remarks from you? I think we've gone over everything. Uh, thanks for having me on. It was a fun little chat here and uh, look forward to hearing the episode. All right, Casey. Thank you. Thank you. I'll catch you later, man. Yep. Have a good one. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like the listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the talent tank. Wyatt, out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the talent tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the talent tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.